Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. Well, number three, I'm Scott Lewis, and I'm here, of course, with my friend, uh, Laura Cohn. Hello, Laura. Hello, everybody. Hi, Scott. Uh, So I have a thing this week. Yeah, what's your thing? A little peeve. (laughs) <laughs> I've been on a couple days now, and it's it's of course more complicated than I thought. Uh, daylight daylight savings time. Oh, you're one of those. We gotta kill it. <laughs> it's it's ruining lives. The people who hate it hate it really. I didn't hate it until a lot. I didn't hate it until I had kids, and uh, and now I feel like I'm at the peak of where it's ruining my life. <laughs> Like it's good in the in the it's fine in the fall whatever, but the spring shift is brutal. Like my my, mm. my daughter already, I think she gets more animated as the night goes on. I'm really worried about her, by the way. Like when she's <laughs> like 16, 17, because she her energy level just like peaks as the hours tick off. Like, <gasps> and so you know, so now daylight savings happens, and it's like ten thirty, and she comes around the corner with this sweet little look, and she oh. says. I put my finger in my nose and I need to go wash my hands. She's just <laughs> Who doing. Can say no. <laughs> yeah, she's just doing everything possible to like stay up longer, and she can't sleep. And then she's dead in the morning. I mean, she's yeah, just yeah. very difficult to motivate. Lorena Gonzalez and uh, she's Assemblywoman uh, Lorena Gonzalez in, Cal- in California, and her colleague uh, are are proposing to switch the law, but it's not. Uh, they ha- they have a problem. Do you want to hear the problem? Yeah, what's the problem? The problem is that to switch it, uh, to switch it, they would they federal law means that they can only switch it to go to the to the normal standard as opposed to the daylights. So everyone prefers the oh. yeah. See, everyone prefers the one we're on now in the spring and summer where it's like light at night. But right. you can't so you're saying daylight savings time year round is yeah what that's you're what I would say yeah yeah and that's what everybody would, you know who agrees but they're but they're like yeah sorry we'd have to go the other way uh-huh. and so it'd be dark at night all that stuff it's yeah like, we'd lose that light in the summertime mm. yeah the the other one working on it is San Jose Assembly member uh, Kansan Chu so um, yeah so uh, Arizona doesn't do it right they don't do daylight savings time yeah but they yeah they exactly they do it that other way uh-huh. so well more sleep for kids is a good thing generally, whether that means later start times for schools or, you know, maybe this will um, help get us there too. But sleep's sleep's a powerful uh, um, uh, energizer. It's it's sleep, food, and health, right? (laughs) They they got to have those those three three basics. Yeah. Or, yeah. All right. Today we're going to talk about, uh, you know, how we, 
uh, judge schools and, and students in standards in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a really special guest coming in, Trish Williams. Uh, she's a member of the State Board of Education who decides those standards. Yes, right? it does. I, I'm yeah. actually quite impressed at how powerful that group is. Yes, it's a volunteer and, group. And not much known about them, but we have one member right here in San Diego County. Just one out of the 11 members is here in San Diego, but she's... Uh, a great one. Um, so we're we're excited to talk to her later. Yeah. So Trish uh, Williams. Uh, but let's start with, of course, the big standards discussion of the day, uh, which is resonating in the uh, presidential campaigns. And you have actually a peeve when you listen to one of them, uh, one of these debates, as they talked about Common Core. And this is the March tenth CNN. Uh, GOP primary debate. Yeah, so let me set the stage. Yeah. I was at the gym. I was on the Stairmaster. I plug in my earphones to distract me from the pain and agony of the Stairmaster. Yeah. And it happened to be at uh, the, the Republican debate was on the screen. It came on. And right at that moment, Jake Tapper asked a question about education. So I was excited, you know, about my timing. And this is your thing. Yeah. Is that, well, yeah, perfect yeah, so timing. I'll be able to totally distract myself from pain and suffering <laughs> exactly. by watching these guys talk about education. So let's hear what Jake Tapper said. And, and then the first response from Donald Trump. Education obviously plays a large role when it comes to jobs and the economy. The United States has long been falling behind others in the industrialized world. American students currently rank 27th out of 34 countries in math and 17th in reading. Mr. Trump, you've called the education standards known as Common Core a disaster. What are your specific objections to Common Core? Education through Washington, D.C. I don't want that. I want local education. I want the parents, and I want all of the teachers, and I want everybody to get together around a school and to make education great. I mean, how can you argue with that? Like, you who, know, who and, likes Washington? You you like Washington D.C.? Are I you grew one of those? up there, so I kind of <laughs> oh, do man, like now it. Now we know. Where but <laughs> yeah, but I started sputtering because, you know, he says I want local education. Well, guess what? We have local education. The level of um, control at states and localities around our public schools is tremendous. The federal government has hardly any influence, really, on what's going on in our local schools. Um, so. I, I was a little bit, you know, well, I was a little on fire at that point, but uh, it, well, it, it Ted goes Cruz on disagrees there. with you. Ted Cruz thinks that uh, Washington has a lot of control. And here's how he explained how Washington does exert this control. Common Core is a disaster. And if I am elected president in the first days as president, I will direct the Department of Education that Common Core ends that day. Now, let me tell you why you can do that, because it's easy to talk about the problem, but you have to understand the solutions. The Obama administration has abused executive power enforcing Common Core on the states. It has used race to the top funds to effectively blackmail and force the states to adopt Common Core. So so did that did that quell your frustration then? No, by this time I was actually yelling at the TV screen. People around me were looking <laughs> over at me uh, to find out what I was all upset about. Uh, yeah, I made a fool of myself over this. Yeah, well, it's like sports, right? Like, you know, it's like a fumble or your guy just threw an interception or whatever. You're just yelling. <laughs> You're, that's your thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so he said, let's address these points. So so did, was Common Core not uh, an, a national um, sort of imposition by the federal government? Absolutely not. Common Core was developed... 
um, collaboratively by the Council of Chief State School Officers, and it wasn't forced on any state. States um, all through have had the discretion about whether to adopt it or not. Most of them participated in it, and at least originally, most of them went ahead and adopted it because they're actually really good standards. Now, could the could the federal government end it the day that Ted Cruz got into office? They could not, no. They don't control Common Core. Since they didn't impose it on the states, there's no way to unimpose it. it all, each state made its own decision. Now, he says, but there were some incentives. Now, raised yeah. to the top and other things. So, does he have a point there? There were incentives. Um, there were carrots. But blackmail is a completely unreasonable characterization of what happened. So, um, as part of the economic recovery, we put a lot of um, resource into the Department of Education to put out these big grants called Race to the Top Grants to states. And to compete effectively for a Race to the Top grant, it, it did give you more points to have adopted Common Core. And I'm, I don't know for sure, but I, I believe that most of the winners or all the winners probably did, did adopt Common Core since most of the states had adopted it. So it was an incentive, a carrot, but it certainly wasn't a requirement. And many states didn't apply for Race to the Top grants for, you know, for a variety of reasons, for some of them because they weren't into Common Core, but uh, for most, for other parts of the Race to the Top grants. So, All right. So let's talk. So I'm one of these guys, like I, I have that sort of knowledge of Common Core, um, but I, I don't, I can't say that I'm an expert on it. So tell me, uh, let's let's do the broad definition of what it is and what it did, and then like actual how it's changing classrooms today. Yeah. So the the idea or the motivation for creating the Common Core state standards is that we had 50 states, we have 50 states, and they had all developed their own individual notions of what kids should know and be able to do. And there was pretty wide variation, both in the quality and in the level of rigor um, among them. And the states all agreed, or most of them agreed, that it would be advantageous to them, both in terms of um, the textbooks that they could purchase and the tests that they could purchase, but also for um, kids and families moving from one place to another, if we could just all agree on a national set of standards. So that's what motivated the creation of Common Core. Um, and they did it well. They involved a wide range of experts and teacher input. Um, the There are lots of changes embedded in them from the way standards had been um, uh, implemented before, but in general, they have less um, fact-based memorization kind of standards and more concepts, more um, critical thinking, more reading for understanding. What subjects does it address? Uh, just reading and language arts. So what about I'm all sorry, the, uh, math and math. language arts. Right, yes. sorry, sorry. So, okay, so so everybody talks about those math things. The, we solve problems now differently, yeah. and there's uh, Facebook is full of all these pictures yeah. of people's worksheets and such where it's just a disaster. <laughs> yeah. So, or it just seems like a very com complicated or confusing way to teach math. So what's happening there? Is it, did it actually say you have to teach math this different way? No, it set different standards and... Um, I think what helps to explain is that the changes for language arts were not as dramatic as they were for math. And so there's a lot more work that districts and textbook developers and curriculum folks are having to do to think about the best ways to now teach to and develop curriculum for these new standards. And so there's some there's some rough patches. My my children are in 8th and 10th uh, grades. They're caught in the middle and some of their math teachers have done a great job of 
um, of doing the new teaching and doing Common Core and others of them not so well. It's been harder for them. But I think after a year or two or three, after they've been working on it for a while, some of these crazy problems will go by the wayside. Well, help me understand what it did. To, so you used to just figure out the problem. and uh, What was different about how a math concept was learned and tested? Yeah, so... The math used to be more, or the math standards used to have more emphasis on mechanical calculation. Um, we still want kids to be able to calculate. Please don't get me wrong, folks out there. Um, but we also want them to understand and understand why they're applying different um, formulas, not just apply the formula. So that's the general idea is, is, that, is to bring math to life for kids and also to do more depth and, um, and concepts and less breadth and just touching on little things. Okay, okay. And then uh, reading, it's, 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 there's an emphasis on, on critical thinking and such. So, And more nonfiction text. That's the other big shift, as they call it in English and language arts, more writing. Um, and uh, but, but if you talk to elementary teachers or really good middle and high school teachers of English and language arts, most of them will tell you it's not that different than the great work they were doing before. It's just now they're supported in that great work because the standards are aligned to what they were already doing. Well, stay tuned for the interview with Trish Williams because we're going to talk about, that's the, the group in California, the State Board of Education that adopted the Common Core Standards, and now they're doing it for uh, national or new uh, next generation science standards, as it were, and yep. even even standards are setting with social studies. Uh, as, as we talk about, I think that they're going to, uh, you know, we put such an emphasis on math and reading in the past, and now we're trying to catch up a little bit on standards for science and for social studies, right? Yeah. And I have to say, when I um, think about California, at first I thought California was being um, a laggard in the implementation of Common Core and just going too slow. But now I think that the way we've done it is brilliant because there's this big backlash, as evidenced by that Republican debate in a lot of other places in the country and um, mostly that has to do with the pace and the stakes that some states put on the implementation of these big major changes for teachers and for students. Wait, and so for explain families. so so that we they they made it go too fast and they put too much at stake with it. So uh, yeah. what what did they put at stake? Um, they ta they implemented new testing really quickly, and new new tests are tough for teachers and for students to get used to, and they also require a little bit of time to calibrate and and get them good. But they um, the, but some states push them in really fast, and then in addition, some states attached consequences for teachers. So they started building test score outcomes into teacher evaluations, and that really, of course, got the teachers excited and angry. Hmm. And then, uh, and then the pace. So uh, this is what year five of this now of, of impl implementation. We're just now yeah. seeing it in, in the last two or three years in, in California, right? Right. This will be the second full spring uh, testing season for California. Other states started it uh, a year prior, or even I think in one case two years prior. So if Ted Cruz wants to get rid of Common Core, he's going to have to go to the State Board of Education, somehow get a vote there, <laughs> and somehow persuade his colleagues to uh, to change yeah, their mind. it's not a power that he has. No. All right. All right, let's move on this week to uh, what is uh, working. What's working? This week, we're going to talk about Devin Vadishka. 
Devin Vadishka is the superintendent of the Vista Unified School District, and uh, he was superintendent of the year for the California Association of School Administrators in 2015. And there's a reason for that, because Devin and his team up in Vista are really stepping back and and doing thoughtful but ambitious changes. They have a big blueprint for educational excellence and innovation that they're working on. They've sparked up some cool new schools that I hope we'll have time to talk about later. Uh, We're working with them on P3. They've got a great partnership with United Way um, around the VISTA partnership. Um, So VISTA's, Devin's a really incredible leader and um, uh, both for his own district and for our region and we're lucky to have him here all right on a little bit of a more dour note let's go into our numbers of the week i'm gonna do two this week so scott you and i have uh, alluded to and i think our guests probably have too to the achievement gap Mm -hmm. but we haven't really explored what that is and Generally, as a as an overall idea, that's the difference in academic achievement between um, either um, whites and Asians and blacks and Latinos on test scores, or between poor kids and non-poor kids. And both of those are are ways of looking at quote unquote the achievement gap. And for San Diego County on third grade reading, for example, the range in scores between Asian kids who um, scored at the top and black kids who scored at the bottom is 42 points. So more specifically, 72% of Asians read at grade level last spring and only 30% of black kids did. That's a huge range and that needs to get fixed. And eighth grade math is even higher, the gap. So the gap there is 51 with Asian students, uh, 73% of them meeting the grade level standards last spring and only 22% of black students across San Diego County meeting that same standard. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that gap, that, uh, that tension is something that we're going to, I'm sure focus a lot of these uh, good schools episodes on. So, um, thanks for that. So stay tuned, uh, for uh, Trish Williams. She's come in and, uh, I think she has a lot to say about how the state board of education works. You might uh, not understand it, but you will after that. Uh, it's fascinating and, uh, let's get to it. All right. We have in studio in the great voice of San Diego podcast studio. We have a, a special guest, uh, Trish Williams. Trish is a member of the state, the California state board of education, Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's an honor. You actually live in San Diego too, right? I have for the last five years. The previous 20, I lived in the Bay Area. What part of San Diego do you live? Scripps Ranch, South Scripps Ranch. Okay, okay. Well, um, we were excited to have you to help us understand uh, what the State Board of Education is. And and tell me, uh, Laura, why you wanted Trish on too. Uh, I'm really excited to have Trish here because um, I think... If we have any loyal listeners to the podcast at this point, they'll know that one thing we're trying to do is lift up the amazing education leaders that we have right here in our community, and Trish is one of those. Uh, she's been flying below the radar for us for the last uh, four and a half years. No longer. You're going to see a big Voice of San Diego, uh, Good Schools for All podcast bump. It's like the Colbert bump. You you won't be able to go down the street. People are like, oh, you got to stop. <laughs> I'll need a disguise. <laughs> Spotlight on you, Trish, but uh, also because you're really wise about education and you're one of our state's premier education leaders right now. And so it's important for our community to, to hear from you and know about you. 
So talk to us about you. So um, how long have you been on the State Board of Education? I was appointed by Governor Brown right after he was elected uh, in January of 2011, uh, confirmed by the Senate in that spring, uh, served for four years, and then was reappointed by Governor Brown last spring and reconfirmed by the Senate. So I'm now five and a half years in. How many uh, members does the Board of Education have? Eleven. Okay. And what is the job that they perform? So the California State Board of Education members are all appointed by the governor, uh, whichever governor happens to be uh, seated at the time. And uh, they are volunteers. It's public service. It's not uh, an actual job where you get paid. Uh, Our expenses are paid, travel expenses. But Uh, Other than that, no. And the role of the state board, they are responsible for making all of the policy decisions, almost all of the policy decisions that affect California schools and school districts and charters. And what's the relationship with the uh, superintendent? Well, that's interesting in California because it's different from most other states. So there is an elected public superintendent in California, which is a little bit awkward because the the role of the California Department of Education is primarily but not exclusively to serve the state board of education who are appointed by the elected governor. So there's uh, the superintendent has... Uh, any superintendent has their agenda and what they care about, and and they uh, make sure that the staff work on that as well. But uh, any policy decision that gets made about California, like what are the academic standards, what is the summative state test, any of those have to be approved by the California State Board. Before we go on, Trish, um, people can probably hear that you came from somewhere other than California originally. Will you tell us a little bit about your background and especially why the governor uh, appointed you to the state board? You're not telling me I have an accent, are you? (laughs) Just a little one. (laughs) (laughs) I've worked so hard on that. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. And uh, and I have a master's degree in public policy. I first, uh, initially in my career, I was selected uh, in a national competition to be a presidential management fellow in Washington, D.C., and I did that for three years. I've worked uh, as a policy uh, consultant to the Oklahoma Commission on Children and Youth. And then when my husband was recruited for a position in uh, the Bay Area, uh, we moved here. And I am uh, within two years, I was the executive director of an organization, statewide organization called EdSource. And EdSource uh, still exists. It's a very fine education journalism organization now. Under my leadership, it was an education research policy analyst data analysis organization. And the current president of the state board, Mike Kirst, who is a longtime uh, friend and colleague of Governor Jerry Brown's, Mike Kirst was on research studies that were funded through EdSource, and uh, he and I have known each other for about 20, 25 years. And when the governor won the election uh, in uh, the fall of 2010, Mike Kirst nominated me to go on to the, uh, to the state board with him. Okay. So give us an example of what kind of policy the State Board of Education might set, uh, what, you know, and, and what that might do to the way we learn, the way we teach. Uh, what it might do is everything. Uh, it, uh, we set the standards for what should be taught and learned in school for every subject. 
Uh, those have recently, over the last five years, changed since we've been on the board. We've changed almost every single one of those uh, discipline areas. We determine what state uh, summative assessment in what areas uh we should have and how those should be structured. We determine what how schools should be and districts should be held accountable in what ways and with what uh, supports that they should have if they're struggling. Those are like the probably the main areas. There's a lot of small areas, uh, smaller than those. Mm-hmm. Those three areas affect every school, every district, every charter, every teacher, and every student in California. So they they are broad standards, uh, not necessarily how you reach those standards. You're not you're not actually telling schools you have to do homework, you have to do this curriculum every day. It's it's a standard they have to hit. Absolutely, that's a good way to describe it and a good distinction to make. So, for instance, there are academic standards in English language arts and math, and these are the these are the uh, learning objectives for each student at each grade level. And then the state also, after they adopt these standards, they convene a group of teachers, uh, K-12 teachers with specialties in whatever area, whether it's English language arts, English language development, math, science, history, and they, they develop together a curriculum framework which is a guide for teachers to consider using. It's supposed to be a support and a resource. It doesn't tell them what curriculum to have in their school or how to teach it. Let me ask you this, and maybe Laura can answer this too. Uh, so where is, the, where is the intersection between the law, where the law ends, and where this sort of stuff begins? Because the, can, a, can a state legislator just say, well, schools should understand financial literacy, or students should understand financial literacy. I'm going to make that a law. And then, and then you guys set the standards, and then the teachers make it happen. Or how? Where does law end, and this sort of policy making begin? Yeah, well, I'll let Trish mainly answer. But the legislature sets the broad policy guidelines, uh, but the state board is tasked. I think this would be accurate to say, with really seeing it out and and uh, implementing it, bringing it to life for schools. Yes, often the governor and the legislature work together on education. And so what the legislature will do is uh, put together a bill which has to be signed by the governor. It doesn't become law. So they have to agree on it. They'll put together a bill that says um, more simply uh, the State Board of Education shall, with the assistance of uh, so many educators and so many higher ed uh, individuals, uh, establish standards for the uh, teaching and learning in English language arts. That's usually how far it goes. Okay. And then it, then once the governor signs that, then it becomes we are responsible by law within a certain time frame for putting that in place. And, and like teacher evaluations, teacher personnel issues and stuff like that, you stay away from that? Yes. The state board doesn't have a role in that. And, uh, and the governor has... Uh, has chosen not to get not to uh, be active on that. So Trish, you you just alluded to a pretty major uh, change in the context for the California education system. Can we let's talk about that a little more? Because I don't know how much uh, for people who have kids in schools, maybe they've heard about Common Core standards. They certainly know about the um, annual assessments that are newly in place just started a couple of years ago, but they might not understand the whole sort of what we're up to in California education and also how it relates to the national context. Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, 
since this uh, State Board of Education has uh, was convened in, in January of 2011, in the last five and a half years, there we have adopted and implemented more major education reforms during that period than any other state board in history mm-hmm. in California. And just for a quick rundown, the uh, Common Core State Standards in English Language Arts and Math were adopted before we came on, just months before, in August of 2010. And then it became our responsibility to carry that out, uh, to implement those with more state policy. In addition, we've adopted the Next Generation Science Standards, which uh, although we adopted them in uh, 2013, the fall of 2013, sc- schools and districts, for the most part, with the exception of uh, a few, are just now getting started implementing those and getting professional development to implement those. The history uh, social studies uh, standards are going to be uh, finalized this coming fall. Uh, but one of the biggest reforms wasn't academic uh, it was in funding, and we adopted the local control funding formula, which for the f- it, that's the biggest reform in school finance in over 40 years in mm-hmm. California, which provided a base level of funding for all schools, but provided additional what's called supplemental funding for three groups of uh, targeted uh, subpopulations, uh, English learners, low-income students, and foster youth. And if there is a concentration of 60% or more of those youth in a, in a district, then you get what's called a concentration bump in terms of your funding. And that's based on research that, that there's a certain tipping point where it, it, it's more challenging for teachers and, and uh, more resources are needed. In addition, we're in the process now of reforming the school accountability system. Okay. I want to go through a couple of those points in particular, but I just want to understand and help people understand when we talk about Common Core, it was the state board of education that it that adopted that first, or was it a state law that then forced the, the board to do it? How does that work? No, it was the state board that adopted it. Okay. And that sets it as the standard. And so this movement goes around around nationwide. State Board of Education convenes and says this is something we want to do as well and implements it. That becomes the standard and it takes several years to actually play out. Yes. Okay. I did that well. Good description. Thank you. <laughs> I suspect uh, California played a role in developing those standards California as well. always plays a role. We're, we have the most mm-hmm. students of any uh, state in the country, six, about 6.2 million students, one out of every 20 students in the country. And so basically uh, what California does gets uh, a lot of attention from every other state, from um, textbook publishers, uh, even the the new ESSA or reauthorized Elementary uh, School and Secondary Act uh, took its cues from uh, the way California is changing its accountability system. The, the local control funding formula that that w- this is like you said a giant shift in how uh, school districts are funded. A big deal for uh, districts like San Diego Unified School District. That's that's different than like education curriculum and standards, though. So did, did that idea originate at the Board of Education and then become law or vice versa? Well, that idea originated with Mike Kirsch, the president of the State Board of Education, who has been a faculty member in the Graduate School of Education at Stanford for decades. And he was in several uh, federal uh, presidential administrations. And he has uh, he teaches uh, uh, education policy and politics. And about 10 years ago, he did a white paper called the Weighted Student uh, Formula. And it was all around research around how to, how to allocate extra funding for students that are, uh, are struggling uh, in school. 
and he and the governor both believed in this particular, uh, how important this was to do both weighted student uh, pupil funding for students that are struggling, but also to reduce the number of categorical programs that uh, are that that schools had to take and then spend the money a certain way, reduce those so that schools had more flexibility in how they chose to target the funding that they got. And so Mike Kirsten, the governor, worked on that, and the governor worked with the legislature on that. So yeah, dramatically reduced those categoricals. And being Californians, we had little pots of money designated for lots of special interests or special causes that people had, and the, the local control funding formula completely consolidated all those. And the important part of it, from my perspective, is that it gives a a great deal more discretion for local districts to set their own priorities based on the conditions they see on the ground in their own district and spend funding in the way that they think is best for their own kids. It does give a great deal more discretion. The other thing that it's also supposed to do, and this is still fairly new, just a couple of years now that this has been in place, is uh, give a great deal more responsibility to districts. And so in to you know, with discretion comes responsibility. Mm-hmm. With freedom comes responsibility. And the intent... Like Spider-Man. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that, but... With, with great... What is, that, is that the line? With great power comes great responsibility? Yes, yes. It, it actually is a good analogy, although I would never have <laughs> Sorry, thought of everything that. is either surfing or Spider-Man to me, so... <laughs> we operate in a whole different right. level. Uh, so... Uh, the, the local control funding formula comes also with a local control accountability plan. And what's really important for, uh, for whoever is listening uh, to know about that is that the intent of the governor, the legislature, and the state board is that districts engage their communities. They, they solicit input from their teachers, from their students, from their businesses in their communities, from their other stakeholders, you know, uh, social groups, social justice groups, all they're supposed to get input on what their priorities should be and make sure that they're responsive to their communities in how they spend their uh, their flexible dollars. You, you mentioned uh, the next generation science standards, and I want to talk about specifically what that might mean for, you know, classrooms and stuff. But when we talk about Common Core, we talk about science standards, we talk about social studies and, and geography standards and such. What, one thing that worries me is what we talked about last week on this show, which is is that you know as schools uh, and and education reformers have pushed schools to learn more to 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 teach more to get more information into students' heads, it kind of doubles down on that old system of schools, right? Where there's different subjects, where there uh, you know the sa- the standards just make it like do better among the the sort of broken up system that we have of social studies here, of, of math here, of science here, and on and on. Is, is, am I reading that wrong? Can you, still, um, can you still find ways to be creative to achieve those standards? Or are we, are we making, making them even more concrete and, and more difficult to be flexible as, as we learn more about how people learn? That's a good question. Uh, the way I would describe it is that the, what's different about the Common Core state standards in English, language, arts, and math over the previous standards in English and math is that it re, uh, it shifts the focus. There is less memorization of isolated facts, and there is more uh, focus on bigger ideas uh, and on discuss, discussion, analysis, uh, uh, arguing from evidence, uh, thinking, critical thinking skills. There's more focus on that, plus uh, the uh, English language arts 
and the math are aligned to one another, so they reinforce one another, and so is the next generation science standards aligned to both of them. So there's actually more opportunities for integration across disciplines than there was before. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that uh, across our own county with schools and districts using the implementation of the Common Core to experiment with more interdisciplinary teaching, with more project-based learning, um, with more um, getting kids out of the classroom and and um, more hands-on learning. Is that what you're seeing around the state also? Yes, that's and, and that's... I think that's one of the most exciting parts of of the new standards. Not obviously, we have over a thousand school districts in California and over 8,000 individual schools. And so they're not all equal in terms of their capacity to be creative and to to look at ways to integrate. But I'm hearing more and more often that they're finding it very, very interesting to think of ways to integrate the disciplines. And in addition, the students are finding the work more interesting. It's more engaging. Well, let's talk about those uh, those next generation science standards. So, uh, where, what were we doing, and and why was that something we needed to address? There's two things. Uh, one is that in, during the No Child Left Behind era, which was the last 10, 15 years, uh, there was an unintended consequence. The intention of No Child Left Behind was to help struggling students, low-income, African-American, Latino, English learners, to help them catch up and and, uh, to close the achievement gap. One of the things that schools did in order to do that, especially for, for students that started behind, started kindergarten behind other students, they doubled down on uh, periods of English and math, and they squeezed science out, especially of K-5. Social they, studies, too. They yeah. just squeezed it out. Yeah. And their intent was good, but, it, but the consequence is not so good because those students then entered middle grades uh, way behind their uh, better-off peers in having a broad-based education so that they could study more, more serious subjects as they got older. So one of the things that is intended with Next Generation Science Standards and, and that the State Board is very committed to is bringing science back as a core subject in K-5. It's going to be hard because a lot of districts over 10 to 15 years, their teachers haven't taught science and they don't have the capacity. So they're going to have to get professional learning in order to do that. Uh, but but it also, the, the big conceptual shift in the way we teach science now under NGSS is that it's less, not not a total lack of memorization of facts. You have you can't be a critical thinker if you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a certain amount of knowledge, factual knowledge. But there's much more focus on what are the really most important ideas in each of the disciplines. They're called disciplinary core ideas. So w- give me an example. Like uh, the scientific method or something? No, the scientific method has actually been replaced by uh, something called oh, uh, practices. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's really different. So the scientific method, which uh, – and by the way, I don't have science as a background, so I'm not going to be able to get too, too – drill down too deep on that. But on the scientific method was a way of uh, hypothesizing theory, testing mm-hmm. theory, that kind of thing. Yeah. The, what they've dis- what is true now in today's world is that scientists work frequently with engineers and they work frequently with computer scientists. There's much more of that and and you see it in in the biotech industry. That's what science and tech and engineering. And so there's much more emphasis in the next generation science standards on uh, computational thinking, mathematical thinking, uh, on uh, 
uh, engineering uh, standards. There's even engineering standards in next generation science uh, standards. So how do you uh, how do scientists discover make new discoveries? How do engineers design solutions to human problems? And how do you know if a student has learned that? Okay, that's a that's a good question because we just adopted these standards two years ago. Uh, there is a group of uh, ten. Uh, districts, eight districts and two charter management organizations that started right away with uh, something called the California K-8 NGSS Early Implementation Initiative. And uh, several of those happen Rolls to be... Rolls off the tongue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of helped start it. So <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty important to me. Uh, and and quite a few of those are in, in San Diego County, but they are the begin... They're the first. They're the early adopters of NGSS. Uh, the rest of the districts are just now getting started doing that. And California, the State Board of Education, is just now getting started with developing a state summative test to measure whether or not st- how students are learning. Just at the last state board meeting last month, we approved a plan for t- to start a very innovative uh, kind of state assessment for next generation science standards, a kind that we've never had before. Mm-hmm. And it's designed to capture the conceptual shifts in NGSS. Hmm. I, I think this is strategic on the state board's part to let the standards roll out, let teachers learn about them and figure out how to teach them and get used to them and comfortable for uh, with them for a while and then start assessing against it. Um, it would you agree with that? Is that... Yes. And in a, in addition, that's the order it always happens. Yeah. You know, it always happens that first you adopt the standards and then you figure out how you're going to do the testing. And all of that, that's the way it always happens in any state. That's the uh, the sequence of events that happens in policy development. But it's also made, uh, it's been made more different for this state board because of the technology that's now available to mm-hmm. us. So you alluded earlier to the fact that uh, there's a new you know, state test for English language arts and math called Smarter Balanced, and it's on computers. We didn't used to test students on computers. We do now. The NGSS proposed state summative test is not only going to be also using the same technology that Smarter Balanced is so that we're using what we've already built in California, but there's also going to be a portion of that test that's what's called student adaptive. Hmm. So it will test the student up as high as their knowledge takes them. And then when the, when it doesn't go any further, uh, then it will shift them over to uh, to use what they do know, what they've proven that they know, and and uh, dig deeper on testing how how uh, their thought process is around that. Hey, Trish, you've been our state's you've actually been a national leader in the next generation science standards development and deployment. You just said you're not a scientist yourself. What? What made you jump into this? Why did you embrace it, and why have you been um, out there helping helping the nation figure this out? Well, I can't say I'm helping the nation figure this out, but I'm definitely the California State Board lead on it and worked very, very closely with the national leader, Stephen Pruitt, at Achieve on it. Um, I in When I got onto the board in January 2011, about three months into it, I heard that there was going to be a workshop in Washington, D.C., given by uh, Stephen Pruitt, uh, explaining what the Next Generation Science Standards were all about. I asked if I could be the one from the state board that attended. And once I did, and I heard how 
how uh, the conceptual shifts on how it was going to change, it made so much sense to me. And one of the reasons it made so much sense to me is because even though I don't have a science background, my youngest son does. And we used to watch science shows all the time on TV when he was a kid. He also uh, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was seven years old. And we are fortunate enough that because of the way the world has changed, because of the way, uh, because of uh, the scientists, the medical scientists, the the biotech uh, people, the uh, computer scientists, within a couple of years after Elliot was diagnosed, he was on an insulin pump and it just changed his life. It made all, his life so much easier and the control of his diabetes so much easier. And a, f- a few years after that, he was on a continuous glucose meter. Uh, now, these aren't fun things to have to be on, but it changes what's possible for you. And it's the result of hundreds and hundreds of scientists, engin- biotech engineers and computer scientists working to solve that kind of a problem. That son of mine uh, attended medical school at UC San Diego. He graduated uh, 2014, and he's now a second-year general surgery resident at UC San Diego. And that would not have been possible if he hadn't had access to that kind of equipment. You do not seem like you're old enough to have a son so accomplished, so congrats. <laughs> well, thank you. I like that. That must be, that must be something. My well, son it, is, it gives me goosebumps just telling you about it because it's so important to me. My son is very into science uh, as just a five-year-old, but I, I can't picture... Uh, how long that would go. Uh, Let me ask you, um, there was an issue that came through here in San Diego, a a charter school named Thrive. Um, uh, Thrive applied for its charter from San Diego Unified. Uh, San Diego Unified, uh, the staff initially recommended it it get through, and then it it, it was rejected at the board level, went to the county, the county uh, rejected it, and then it went to the state I believe it was the Board of Education, which finally approved it. And now it's the talk of the town. The state senator, Ben Weso, uh, gave it an award. Uh, uh, Shirley Weber just gave uh, the leader of it an an award. Uh, They're all very excited about it. What did you guys see that the local district didn't, do you think? So let me just give you a quick a quick rundown of how this happens. Uh, There's a law in California that allows any charter petitioner, whether it's you're trying to get a new charter school started or you're trying to renew a current charter school, or you've been revoked uh, by your local authorizer. It starts at the district, and if they deny it, there are certain criteria that have to be uh, examined and they have to meet, and there's only four reasons why a charter school can be denied, and don't ask me what they are, because right now I'm not, they're not my mind. Sure. if they're denied at the district level, they must go to the county. If they're denied at the county, then they have the right to come to the State Board of Education. They don't all do that. Uh, it depends on what kind of feedback they got and how strong they feel. They don't usually come before us unless they feel pretty strong. The thing about it is that the elements that you look at, that we're all required to look at, you could look at them and one person could say, these don't look strong enough to me. This isn't reasonably comprehensive to me. They they didn't do this or this or that. And another person can look at them and say, wow, this looks pretty good. Oh, yeah, they left off a few little tiny things. Mm-hmm. But overall, they're really strong. The leadership's strong. The, the budget forecast is strong. The program is innovative. There's uh, strong parent demand. And that happens actually quite a bit with the state board. So in, in this case, in, uh, in particular, it, that's what happened with Thrive. Uh, their leadership uh, was strong. 
Uh, their budget forecast was strong. They had a very innovative kind of program they were going to do, which did have a lot of what they call maker activities in it, hands-on kinds of activities, as well as the re- other academics. And the process we use is that first the Department of Education Charter Division analyzes their petition, and then they make their own recommendation. That recommendation goes to the Advisory Commission on Charter Schools, which is advisory to the state board. We hand-select the members on that from people who apply when we have openings, and they advise us. So then there's a the first round of hearings on a charter petition like Thrive occurs before the Advisory Commission on Charter Schools. It's conducted just like the state board hearings. Ten minutes for the petitioner to make a case. Ten minutes if there's a district or county person there that wants to argue why they, they were right and why we shouldn't consider it. Then there's deliberations among the Advisory Commission members. There's nine of those. Then they make a recommendation to the state board. Sometimes their recommendation agrees with the Department of Ed's recommendation and sometimes it disagrees. But they've had the benefit at the ACCS of a hearing and not just a paper review. Then it comes to the State Board of Education, and we go through the hearing again. One of the things I've done, because I've been the lead on the State Board for uh, charter schools, uh, charter petitions, appeals, uh, since I was since I came onto the state board is uh, I am the first state board member to attend every single advisory commission on charter school meeting in addition to the state board meetings. And I do that because I take a really thorough look at the whole process. Uh, and I want to make sure that whatever recommendation that myself or uh, the other state board liaison make to the state board that we, we feel really confident and, and can stand behind it. So how common is that, that the state board approves a charter and you would only approve it if the local district and the county have rejected it. So how many times a year does that come to you, roughly? Half a dozen. Okay. We have uh, 30, I think, st- state board-approved charters right now. Okay. There's a there's a little bit of a controversy going on here about districts that are approving charters outside their normal geographic boundaries. Uh, and, and, you know, there's cross complaints and anger uh, coming out about that, that districts are poaching each other's resources, that sort of thing. Are you guys hammering that out now? Or are you waiting to see what happens? Well, the state board hasn't taken it up. I think okay. it, what it requires is for the legislature to take it up and to get, uh, to get a, a bill articulated in a way that the governor um, will approve it. So, the governor, this particular governor, is fairly charter friendly. He started two charter schools of, mm-hmm. in Oakland, yeah. uh, so his and and his charter school, Oakland Military Institute, actually got denied at the local level and originally mm-hmm. got approved by the state board of education, and then it then it got approved later at the local level. Mm-hmm. So he has a sympathy for that, but uh, I would not say. I, I will speak for myself as an individual because we haven't had a board discussion on this. Uh, I am uh, I am concerned about that practice and understand why districts don't like it. All right, I, I, we could talk to you all morning, but I guess we have to wrap up pretty soon. I do want to ask you about the issue. Uh, go a little bit back to what you said about how we uh, make sure students uh, are learning certain standards and such. How do we avoid what seems like everyone agrees is is just this sort of suffocating. Uh, standardized test world. There's uh, reformers and there's actual teachers and a a bunch of people who seem to agree a lot that there's too much testing or too, that it feels like there's too much. And yet you and and everyone agrees that we need 
high standards. So is there a, is there a third way that we can see through this? Uh, and you mentioned some of these adaptive tests, technology, is that the answer or? That's another good question. Um, well, I'm rolling them out. I know, you really are. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised and impressed. Uh, so this particular state board, the view about standards-based testing, it can be driven by people who don't want to be held accountable. Sometimes that's the case. Or it can also, the other side of that is that they feel like there's too much testing and, and that it takes time away from instruction or it takes time away uh, from, uh, or that it's hard on the students, especially younger students. A lot of valid viewpoints is what I'm trying to say here. Sure. So we have to have some way, for one thing, we're required by federal law to have some way to make sure that students are learning standards or we don't get federal money. And we also, the state board, uh, believes in uh, having standards and believes in students learning. Uh, we don't have any kind of policy for using those test results on uh, for teacher evaluation, which you mentioned earlier. We've made taken deliberate steps to make sure that the smarter balance testing on ELA and math is as short as it can be while still being considered valid and reliable. And we're doing the same thing with the next generation science test. So we've heard those concerns. The other part of it is uh, uh, we have we are what I would call a kinder, gentler, State Board of Education with regard to accountability. We are shifting the entire accountability system so that it is not about gotcha. It's not about putting schools and districts on a list of failure or program improvement with with penalties. Uh, we are much more, we feel like that did not work effectively under NCLB. And the new accountability system that we've been working on will uh, integrate federal, state, and local control accountability plans. So it'll be one system that won't be in conflict with one another, but it will also be uh, focused more on providing support and assistance to schools to improve, less on being punitive. Well, Trish Williams, I think uh, on behalf of both uh, both our organizations and and uh, and this new budding podcast, uh, working its way, by the way, up the rank of the education category in iTunes, uh, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having Thanks, me. Trish. Yes, it's been fun. Well, that, that was a good discussion with Trish. I enjoyed, uh, I, I, I know more now. Yeah, I, good. You I, learned I, something, huh? I wanted to push her a little bit more. I should have on just, wow, like the one guy, along with obviously a lot of influential people, changed school funding. When I look at school funding, when I first started studying it, you know, a decade ago, I, I, it was like this dinosaur, this, this like, yeah. This giant octopus I could not fathom, yeah. and to think that one guy could could make make it change that dramatically. Yeah, two guys, you know, Mike Kirst and the governor. Mike Kirst for the wisdom, and the governor just a raw power move. Right, and and the districts still are reeling from it. Actually, they look back. They they, they aren't quite sure what happened to them, but they <laughs> they right. see that it did. Right. <laughs> All right, so um, uh, thank you for joining us. And if you have not uh, reviewed this podcast on iTunes, please do that. That'll help us tremendously uh, work our way up uh, the education category rankings and other things. Also, please spread it around to your friends. And for uh, Scott Lewis at Voice San Diego and my friend Laura Cohn at the uh, Education Synergy Alliance, this is Good Schools for All. Good Schools for All.